0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Amen. Thank you, brother, for reading for us this morning. I'm so glad you have your copy of God's Word at Exodus chapter 17. We'll be diving in there momentarily. My name is James. It's great to be with you and to just take a moment before I preach to say thank you for being a part of the family of churches that is the Greater Dayton Association of Baptists. We are, the Ridge here, is one of 96 churches in the Greater Dayton area that cooperates together for the sake of gospel growth. And it's a really great privilege to be with you. You guys hosted in January uh, one of our four meetings that we have in the year. And so thank you for doing that. Our goal is simple, and that is that we would see the gospel grow as we equip leaders and encourage pastors. And so the 96 churches work together to plant churches. We help support one another in times of need. And we really invest in pastors to encourage them when they're weary. A quick story just about the beauty of the relationships that are forged through the GDAB. On Friday, I got a text message that a church a little bit north of here, I've forgotten the name of the town now, but it's called Awakenings Christian Fellowship. They're joining the GDAB, and the text said, hey, the building we're meeting in, uh, we had a fire, and we don't know where we're going to meet. Could you help us out? Guess what happened? I made a few phone calls and called a few of our pastors and churches, and they heard about this, and boom. Next thing you know, they've got a place to meet. These kinds of things happen. This is just this weekend. These kind of things happen on a regular basis. And it's because of the power of relationships. It's the relational capital that we build with one another throughout the Greater Dayton region. And so thank you for being an integral part of that. In Exodus chapter seventeen, we find a story that will give us, I believe, strength in the midst of weariness. And I, I don't know if it's true for you here today, this morning. But I've often felt alone. I've felt alone even in crowds. Uh, there was a sociologist in 1950 who wrote a book talking about how we even experience this thing he calls the lonely crowd. And that is you can even be with people but experience loneliness and aloneness while you're with other people. This thing's given me a lot of trouble. So I'm, okay. It's it's there. Um, and, and then in 2000, there was a guy named Bob Putnam. He wrote a book and talked about the same kind of a problem with the loss of neighborliness. And he talks about the curse of the garage door opener. There was a time in a day when neighbors knew each other's names and they really helped each other out. And now we've got garage doors and we come home from work, click the button, go in, click the button, the door closes, we go in our house and we never have to see our neighbors. That's a really bad thing that's happening, though, in our world. We're losing social capital. We're losing relationships. And the power of relationships is something that God has given us as a gift to give us strength in the midst of weariness. Isolation is one of the enemy's strongest tactics and oldest tactics. His strategy's always been the same that is, that he would get us alone that he would isolate us, and he would convince us that we each need to fight our battles alone. Just as the wolf would pick off the lone sheep that has wandered from the safety of the flock, Satan would love to devour Christians who believe that they can do it by themselves without the strength of the body. This story in Exodus 17 Tells us a very important truth that is a theme throughout the Bible that is, that God secures our victory and He does so in the strength of united faith in the power of togetherness. My encouragement to you today I hope what you walk away with is that we would engage together in, for strength in fighting the enemy and that God would indeed take anybody who's here this morning who's experiencing weakness from isolation. He would take you from weakness and isolation to strength and togetherness in Christ. So our brother read the story for us. As you ramp up to this story of this epic battle between the Amalekites and the Israelites, I want you to see where this story fits in the whole narrative that Moses is writing for us through Exodus. And what you'll see here, I hope, is that this story is one of several stories that show us a central truth. Number one, God proves continually that He is their salvation, their deliverance. In other words, when you trace this story out, whether it's early on in their slavery under the hand of Pharaoh and the, under the Egyptians, or whether it's through their 40 years of wilderness wandering, of which this is the very beginning of those 40 years, or whether it's the conquest narratives that go into the book of Joshua, the theme that you see time and time again is that God proves continually that He's their salvation, their deliverance. The temptation, the natural human temptation is for us to view ourselves to be self-sufficient. We, we naturally think sinfully. We think, I got this. I can do this on my own. And God's people had that regular temptation to think they've got this. It, they, they, they've got it all under control. But we see God is their salvation. And the way that Moses demonstrates this for us, if you'll flip back to Exodus 15, I want you to see these five things in a row that Moses does. On their way to the promised land, God's people encounter various problems they cannot solve. In chapter 15, we see the problem of water. They run out of water and can't find water, and they're about to thirst to death. Well, what do they do? The Bible doesn't tell us that they were strong and they, were ing- they had a lot of ingenuity and they really pulled together and dug a well or something. No, they grumbled, they complained, they whined, and they shook their puny fist in God's face and they said, why have you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? It wasn't just true about the water in chapter 15, verses 22 through 27, and then God provides them with water. But then it happens again with food in chapter 16, and this is when, you probably remember this, this is when God rained down bread from heaven. But, but here they are, starving to death. God, what are you thinking? You have messed up. Why'd you lead us out here to die? We should have just stayed in Egypt. God says, I got you covered. He miraculously rains down bread from heaven, and they eat it, and they, they call it manna. And they say, what is this? But again, God proves continually he is their salvation, their deliverance. Then in chapter 17, the first part, there's another story of them running out of water. This time, instead of him making bitter water sweet, which was the miracle in chapter 15, now in chapter 17, Moses strikes a rock with the staff and water miraculously comes out. Now they've got a problem of passage and they can't solve it. What happens? Again, God delivers them. Then in chapter 18, do you see what Moses is doing? Are you tracking with me? 15, 16, 17, 18, story after story, God's people have problems they can't solve, and he proves continually he's their deliverance. Because in chapter 18, they have these internal conflicts and problems they can't solve. And I hope that whether, whether you're seeing these enemies of from the outside or inside, I hope that you're seeing that though God's enemies are many and God's people are weak, God is strong and faithful to fulfill his promises. We each one encounter a variety of enemies. Sometimes, and Ephesians breaks this down into three helpful ways for us, sometimes we face enemies from outside of ourselves. In fact, the Bible tells us that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 4.10 just as the Amalekites came upon Israel here in this story, unprovoked, they said, we're going to wipe you out. That's what Satan says every single day, every waking moment of your life. I'm going to take you out. And he's scheming and he's strategizing. He's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, finding isolated people that he can take down, who are weak, who are vulnerable. Sometimes, though, the Bible tells us that Though the world would certainly come at us, though Satan would come at us, sometimes the Bible tells us that we are our own worst enemy. Our hearts are depraved and wicked. And sometimes it's lies that we tell ourselves and we tear ourselves down. We're not very kind to ourselves sometimes. I don't know what kind of enemies you're facing today, but I do know this. Our enemies are many. Some of you walked in and you're facing enemies in your mind enemies of anxiety, enemies of fear, challenges of depression, hopelessness. Some of you have a relationship in your life that's not going well right now. Perhaps your marriage is on the rocks or your significant other, you're in conflict with them. For some of you, you feel the pressure and the weight of the way that our world is increasingly becoming secularized. So you're facing these battles about curriculum and education, and you're wondering, is this the right school for my kids? We face enemies on every front, but I want you to rest assured, though our enemies are many, though we are weak, God is strong and faithful to fulfill His promises. Look at how God does this here. It tells us in verse 8 that the Amalekites came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, we've read the text, so you know, take a deep breath, God's people win. God wins. He secures their victory. And this comes to the conclusion in verses 14 through 16. We find the very end of the story summarizing this for us. The, The author, Moses, wants to leave us with no doubt that the climax of the story is when everybody worships and praises God. Look at verse 14. After the battle's over and they win, as verse 13 says, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to write this down as a memorial. I want you to recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God's saying, if, if, if there's an enemy of my people and they're an enemy of me, I will wipe them out. And this is true, isn't it? If if you're here today and you're an enemy of God and you're just kind of playing church to placate a family member or something like that, you're in a dangerous place, very risky place. Because if you ultimately, finally shake your fist at God and you say, no, I'm going to receive the worship that's due to me and you don't give God the worship he's due as the creator, sustainer of the universe, you will be going down. The day is coming. The good news is that you have an opportunity right now to even turn from that bad attitude you've got. You can turn from that and you can submit yourselves to God, humble yourself before God and say, You know what, God? You've got this. You're powerful. I'm not. You're in charge and I'm not. And I submit to you. That's my encouragement to you to do today before it's too late. But what he says here is that this is sure. This is going to happen. I don't care what kind of enemy it is. God says they are going down. And he knows that they're forgetful. That's why he tells them, write it down and recite it. He says, read it out loud to yourselves over and over again, that I will have victory over my enemies. It tells us in verse 15 that Moses responds in an act of worship. He builds an altar. He, he kind of consecrates and sets aside this little place to be a place of worship where he gives God the glory due to his name. And he even calls that place, that altar, He calls it the Lord is my banner. In some of your translations, it calls it Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He's saying the Lord's the one who's out front here who gets the credit. His name is in the marquee. Uh, The billboard is filled up with the name of the Lord of hosts, who is indeed our banner, who deserves the credit, who deserves the praise, who deserves the glory and the worship, because he's the one who won. That's essentially the point, even of verse 16, which has a difficult to translate Hebrew phrase. My translation, the ESV says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Your translation, if it's anything different than the ESV, it says it a little bit differently. And that just tips you off that the translators had a tough time with this. It's a tough Hebrew phrase. But essentially, what it means is, consistent with the verses before it, is that God's going to secure the victory. He's going to have war and he's going to win the war. I don't know if you've ever seen this in your life, but, but what is true of this story that when the Israelites were attacked in verse 8 by the Amalekites, they probably had these moments of doubt, these moments of question at the minimum. Are, are we going to win? Are, are they going to wipe us out? I, I know it feels that way for us often, doesn't it? It feels that way that, that anxiety is going to win. That conflict and bitterness and a grudge is going to take you to your grave. That, that this problem that you have, a sexual addiction, is going to take you down and you won't win. It feels that way, doesn't it? I want you to know that God secures our victory. I want you to even see this as the story plays itself out. This is part of the point of how Moses tells the story in verses 9 and following. Watch this, verse 9, Moses comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, we're under attack, we've got to rally the men, rally the troops together, and we've got to fight with Amalek. We've got to fight, but tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now this surprised me, I remember the first time I read this, I remember thinking to myself, why would Moses go to the top of the hill with a stick while everybody else is slinging swords down here? Why wouldn't Moses say, guys, you get your swords ready, get your spears ready. I know we've never fought in a battle before. I know this is the first time we've ever dealt with this, but we got to do this together. I'll be right by your side on the front lines. I've got my sword and shield ready. I'll be honest with you. That's what I kind of expected. Moses says, I'm going to the top of the hill, and I'm going with the staff of God in my hand. He goes to the top of the hill. Aaron and her go with him. And the pivot point of the story is that when Moses' hands are up in the air, extended with that staff in their hands, they win. It says they prevail. But when he gets tired and his arms droop down, the enemy starts to win. Now, what is going on here? There's nothing magical in the stick, nothing magical in Moses' hands. It was simply this. When Moses was extending his hands heavenward, He was praying to the Lord that the Lord would deliver them. Moses was expressing faith that God would work another miracle. Do you remember this staff? This was no ordinary stick. This wasn't a walking staff that he picked up to get to the top of the hill because he was getting frail and feeble. The staff of God had been used many times as... Matthew Henry, a commentator, he calls it the wonder working rod. Because we see in Exodus 4 and 7, 8 and 17, Numbers chapter 20 verses 8 and 12 tell us this. Over and over again, what does God use this staff for? He uses it to demonstrate his power. This was the same staff. Do you remember, go back in your mind to many years prior to this. You remember when Moses was very first called out by God? Moses was a sheep herder. He was out in the wilderness and all of a sudden this bush lights up the bible says it was a burning bush but it wasn't consumed and then a voice comes out of the bush and it says moses and here moses is out in the middle of the wilderness by himself thinking what is happening and he starts talking to the bush (laughs) and the bush The the voice that comes out of the bush says, I am Yahweh. I am, I am. I am the self, the the always existing one. And I've got a mission for you, Moses. You remember Moses takes off his sandals because he's on holy ground there, the voice says. And and God says to Moses, I'm calling you on a mission. You are the man who is going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Of course, Moses is fearful He says, Nope, I don't think I'm the man to do it. I stutter. I've got a problem. I can't make it. And God says, Yep, you will. And I'm going to show you a little sign right now. He says, Take that thing in your hand. What's in your hand? Moses said, A staff. And God says, Throw it down. And that staff becomes what? A snake. And he says, pick it up by the tail, and he does, and it turns back into a staff. And God says, that's what I want you to do to Pharaoh to show him that I'm powerful. So Moses does. He obeys, and he goes back to Pharaoh, and he throws the staff down. It becomes a serpent. And this is the same staff that God uses, not only for that miracle, but do you remember the ten plagues that came? Each one of those plagues, God is using this staff. He strikes it in the dirt and the dust flies up and becomes gnats. He strikes it into the water and it turns into blood. He casts this staff over the Red Sea and God parts the waters and they cross in dry land. This is the same staff that Moses has been using. Commentators named Kyle and DeLich say that God has chosen and already employed this staff as the medium of the saving manifestation of God's almighty power. It became a sign and a symbol, and it encouraged the people that when Moses was holding up that staff, they didn't see Moses holding up his walking stick. They saw him holding up that wonder-working rod, and they were reminded, God has seen us through before, and it encouraged their faith that God will see them through again. Matthew, Henry, gives us a word of encouragement to apply this even in our own lives. He says it lends much to the encouragement of faith to reflect upon the great thing God has done for us and to review the monuments of his favors. I like that phrase a lot, monuments of his favors. I especially like that because there are these monuments of God's favor in my life that there are things that I like to think of them as reminders of God's goodness and faithfulness. My wife, who sometimes doesn't know the story behind the thing, thinks of it as a piece of junk. And so she's often purging, right? But, for example, there's this little silver key, and it doesn't work to any car anymore. That, that car's long been gone and melted into something else. But I have a little silver key that rattles around in my drawer, and that key, when I see that key, you know what it reminds me of? It went to my 1985 American Motors Renault. My very first car. And that little key just reminds me, God provided for you. You didn't know how you were going to buy your first car, but I provided your car. And there are other things in my life that I can look back on and I just celebrate and remember God's God's mercy, his kindness, his provision, his promises never fail. I've been poor most of my life, but I've never been hungry. God's always provided my needs. Can you think back to things that God has done to provide for you in your life? I would encourage you to have something that visually would stimulate and trigger a memory and a thought and an emotion of praise and thanksgiving to God for His kindness in your life. Sometimes I love I love doing this with pictures of people in my life, and we'll print the pictures and we'll put them up on the wall. You know what they remind me of? They remind me God's faithful. He provides people in my life to remind me of His grace of his mercy. You see, Moses, in raising the staff heavenward, was expressing faith and reminding the people that God would work another miracle. And by calling out to God, Moses led the people to acknowledge that they could not win the war solely by the sword. I'm sure it crossed Moses's mind that they could use another sword down on the battlefield. But he had this thought that I have often. I often wake up in the morning a little bit too early before my alarm goes off. I wake up and I think, why did I wake up before my alarm woke me up? And then my mind starts racing through my to-do list and the appointments that I have and all the rest that's ahead of me. Uh, And I think to myself, man, I am so busy today, I don't have time to pray. A fatal thought. The truth is, When you feel so busy that you feel like you don't have time to pray, those are the moments you can't afford not to pray. And that's what Moses illustrates for us here, doesn't he? He knew they needed swords badly on the battlefield, but they needed prayer far more. Friends, if you're ever in a moment where you're trying to figure life out, and you're trying to figure out your next steps, and school, and job, and house, and family, and life... And you feel just the weight of that, and you feel like you've got so much to do, the best thing you could do is to pause, call out to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, alongside of 2 Corinthians 10:4, teaches us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And then Second Corinthians tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And what this teaches us, practically speaking, is that our battle against all the enemies that we face is not a battle that can be won simply by us having enough muscles, enough willpower, mind over matter. The Christian journey is a journey that calls you to warfare, calls you to fight, not... So that you will win the war, but because God has indeed promised the victory. So, for example, some of you are here this morning, and you are just financially—you're really struggling to manage your money well, not being a good steward of the financial resources. Sometimes you struggle to pay bills, and you got debt, and you're feeling this weight, and you're like, well, "What are we going to do?" Well. What the world would tell you is, well, you can get out of debt and you can steward your money well if you just have a budget and a spreadsheet and here's the app to track that and all the rest, right? Those are not bad tools, but here's the heart of the matter. Heart of the matter is our stewardship problems are never merely a problem with not having a spreadsheet. Stewardship problems are problems of the heart. We're not in a spirit of prayer and dependency on the Lord to say, God, how do you want me to spend my money? And part of the problem you might be in debt and financial ruin is because you're spending money to purchase things that we're trying to fill a void that only God can fill. There's there's a heart matter. So have a budget, get a spreadsheet, but only do it alongside of a spirit of prayer and dependence that only a right perspective of God and a worship of God will get your money in the right place. Some of you are here this morning and you battle an addiction to pornography and, and maybe your wife has called you out or your husband has called you out. And, and so you're like, yeah, I got to do this. I need some accountability. I need some uh, porn blocking software on my computer and, and, and these kinds of things. And you're like, you know, what, what are you trying to do? You're trying to fight this spiritual battle with weapons of warfare that are fleshly. Now, there's nothing wrong with accountability and software and uh, porn blockers on your computer and these kinds of things. Nothing wrong with that. But again, how does this principle apply there? We win the war against pornography, not merely with software and weapons of our warfare. We win the war by calling out to God and saying, God, my heart is in the wrong place here. I have a problem of lust, and I'm not going to get over this unless you change my heart and help me to learn to treat other people with dignity, not as objects to be utilized for my pleasure." And we get our hearts in a spot where we say, God, how have you designed and created our bodies? And what is the purpose of sex? And our worldview takes a transformation from God. He shapes and changes our hearts and our spirits, our souls. And when he does that, then we fight from that victory that he gives us. And the rest begins to fall into place. Satan would love for you to believe that you can just win this thing on your own, if you just have enough grit, self-will and determination friends I'm calling you to acknowledge that you cannot win the war solely by the sword you can't just grit your teeth strong enough and tight enough and expect to have a victory you see the people in this story, they looked at this staff and they were reminded God's delivered us before He'll deliver us now if we will depend on him. They did not yet have, this was a couple thousand years or so before Christ came. But they were looking to what God had given them in that time, the staff of God. And in a similar kind of a way, you and I are called each one to look backward now in history. Two thousand years ago to look to the cross. God calls us each to look to the cross where Jesus was lifted up and all men would be drawn to Him in faith, John 12 says. We don't look up to the staff of God, we look up to the cross and we have crosses like this cross, not because that's magical, but it reminds us, it's a symbol of the fact that God is certain and unwavering in His promise to deliver us from sin, from death, and the grave. The cross lifted up is the certain and unwavering sign of God's victorious presence and power in our lives, because it was at the cross where Jesus paid it all, as we sing. It it was at the cross where He took our place. It, It was at the cross where Jesus died as our substitute, bearing our penalty, the wrath of God that should have been given to us for our sin, that would swallow us up and crush us. Instead of crushing us, it pleased the Father to crush His Son. On that cross, Jesus died, and that's why we sing that there is victory in Jesus. Our fight and our battle is a fight and a battle from the victory of the cross, not for the victory. You don't have to come here to church and hear the Word preached and read the Bible so that you can think, oh, this is, these are the steps I need to take to be a better person, No, just come and lay your person down at the feet of the cross and say, Jesus, I never could be the person that you want me to be because I'm too sinful to do it. I don't have the strength. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the power. But you do. You died in my place, and in your death, in your resurrection, in your ascension to the right hand of the Father, to rule and to reign from the throne at the right hand of God, in Jesus Christ, we have certain victory. There is no more encouraging thing in the Christian journey than to be reminded of the cross where Jesus paid it all. I want you to pay attention to this fact that not only in this story, do we see God secure the victory over and over and over again. And here, God secures their victory. But I want you to pay attention to how he does this. You see, God secures our victory in the strength of united faith. As the story plays out, you see everybody playing a different role, don't you? The enemy comes. Moses says to Joshua, you're going to be my field commander. Joshua's very young at this time, by the way. This is the first mention of Joshua And Moses taps him on the shoulder and says, you're the man. Rally the troops. Get them together. We're going to go out and fight. I'm going to the top of the hill. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Verse 10 says, they fought with Amalek. And then Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So you can see already, Moses didn't come out there and just I had all these scenes from these movies in my mind of somebody going out there and just single-handedly wiping them all out. We don't, we don't see anything like that here at all. We see a group of God's people working together in different ways. Some of them slinging swords on the battlefield. Some of them going up to pray. Aaron and her are coming alongside of Moses to be an encouragement and strengthen him. And they're each one just expressing their faith that God is going to work another miracle So, it tells us this is exactly what they did. Verse 10, they fought. Moses, though, holds up his hand, and when he holds up his hand, Israel's prevailing. When he lowers his hand, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12, I think, is one of the most significant verses in this and instructive for us as far as how do we live this out and how do we embody this. Verse 12 tells us that Moses's hands grew weary. You see, as they were working out their faith, as they were using means of grace and obedience to God, they, they saw that not only did he need a sword, but they needed a stone to roll it up underneath Moses. They needed to steady his hands. They needed to be by his side because they realized that we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So they were operating from this victory to come alongside of Moses and hold up his hands. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The Bible teaches us here in verse 12 that, surprisingly so for many folks, even heroes of the faith like Moses get tired. I have many heroes of the faith. There are many that have gone before me and instructed me, mentored, coached me, and I'm indebted to them. One of the dangerous things, though, that we in Christianity today have have embraced is this celebrity culture where we elevate someone higher than they ought to be elevated. So much so that we look to them, and in looking to them, we no longer look to Jesus. And, And this portrait here of Moses is a great reminder to you and to me that we must always keep in our awareness that even heroes of the faith like Moses get tired? Did you know that even Pastor Raleigh, Pastor Brian, get tired? They're human. They're not Jesus. They're not perfect. They need the body to support them. They need the other elders to be there and to share the load and to hold their arms up when they get weary, when they get tired. I'm so glad that Pastor Raleigh took the break to, to do this long weekend. Pastors of all people, pastors can sometimes be the most stubborn people when it comes to taking their vacation. <laughs> I, my dad's a pastor, and I, so I lived this as a kid, and then my vocational life has been 20-some years now in church ministries. And I can attest to this as a personal struggle for myself to slow down, and take a break, and rest and it's, it's only after burnout that many pastors look back and realize, man, I was really burning the candle on both ends, and I really should not have been doing that. Even here as the faith get tired, encourage your pastors to rest, to recuperate. But it also instructs us as to some of the different kinds of roles that we in the body of Christ play for one another. I believe that one of the lessons from verses 12 and 13 is that we each play a different role to help one another, and it illustrates for us the truth of Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, that they are stronger together. God's people demonstrate that we are stronger together. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us two are better than one. When somebody falls down, the other that's there can help pick them up. But it says pity the person who doesn't have somebody there with them to help them when they fall. And so God has called us to be alongside of one another in a way that gives us strength that not one of us can have by ourselves. This is indeed the New Testament model. There are 59 commands in the New Testament to one another. The, there's a Greek word called "alelone," and translated in our Bibles, it is one another. And we are commanded 59 times to love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, care for one another, encourage one another, 59 times. If there ever was a moment in the last these couple of last years where you were doubtful of whether or not you actually needed to be together to have church, but you maybe felt like at different times, that I've heard this many times, that, well, I can just do church online. Can't do church online. How are you going to love one another online? How are you going to forgive one another? How are you going to bear one another's burdens virtually I get it. It's a temporary stopgap measure. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that technology to help, help us limp along. But let's be honest. That's what we were doing. We were limping along when we were doing online church. Church is a gathering and a knitting together of believers in which life is exchanged and shared and there is reciprocal benefit and mutual benefit. There's an exchange and a back and a forth and it's different seasons that we all go through. We, we each experience different seasons of giving and receiving support, and sometimes we're in the seat of Moses here, and we're weary, and we need Aaron and her type of folks to come alongside and help us to hold up our arms. And sometimes we're in the spot of Aaron and her to come alongside and to support others and hold up their arms. I wonder, I've, I've not given this a lot of thought, because Scripture doesn't dive into this, but I've had this question at least, and I think it's a relevant question that maybe you've asked too. In this story, do you you ever wonder if Moses ever told the the spotters, Aaron and Her, did he ever think to himself, guys, I got this. I'll I'll be okay. You guys go take a nap or whatever. I, I got this. I don't know. We... We know that Moses was a humble man, so I, I'm doubtful that he have even permitted that thought to percolate long. But I can be transparent with you and tell you that I've had that thought many times, at just a purely practical, physical level. Back in my younger days, when I used to lift weights, I know you can't tell now, but back in my younger days, and I would be on the bench press and or doing dumbbell flies or whatever the case may be, and When you're doing free weights, you always need a spotter, but there were many times when I felt like I didn't need a spotter, and I'm like, I got this. (laughs) I can get to rep number 10 without anybody being close by, and I paid the price. There were many times when I would drop those weights on my chest or sling it off to the side, and... It was, it was a pretty risky situation I put myself in, a vulnerable situation I put myself in, being isolated like that. And that's a picture of our lives, our Christian lives, spiritually speaking, in our journeys. We often have this, this prideful attitude of being sufficient on ourselves, but we, we're, the truth is that we're not. We all have those different seasons of needing to receive support. Sometimes we're the spotter and sometimes we're the lifter, but we're all in different seasons at different times. You see, there's not a one of us here that doesn't at some time or another need the help of others. And this is illustrated for us even in the fact of the good news of Jesus itself. This is why this church is all about life transformation in the person of Jesus Christ. Not one person other than Jesus. Jesus is the one that we worship because He's the only one who could be our Savior. Jesus is the one that as we give and receive support for each other, that's a tangible reminder when we help each other and then receive help because we're weak ourselves, that's a tangible reminder of the fact that Jesus is the one, the only one who never really in and of himself was ever weak. Jesus's weakness was something he took on. Philippians 2 puts it like this, that that Jesus had everything. He He had the fullness of divinity and all the riches and all the glory with that. Jesus eternally existed with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, And Jesus, because of his love for us, because of the Father's love for us, he sent Jesus to take on human flesh and to take on our weakness and to live a human life and then die, not because he deserved it. Jesus got hungry, not because he couldn't figure out how to turn the stones into loaves of bread, as Satan was tempting him to do. No, Jesus willingly submitted himself to our frail, human, fallen experience so that he could live and die and rise again in our place, purchasing our abundant life. It is only in Christ that we have that. He's the one that remains strong when we're in our weakest moment. And in those moments when our church may even, I mean, mercy, I think of of persecuted churches across the the world and I think of churches that experience natural disasters. I think of churches that are decimated and everybody is in a time of weakness and need and we're just looking to Jesus alone and saying it's obvious now if it never wasn't obvious before. It's obvious now. Jesus is our only hope because we've all got nothing. But in those moments it becomes crystal clear and God and his sovereign and kind kind divinity, God just peels away all those illusions of self-sufficiency, and he shows us Jesus is all you need. And in those moments when Jesus is all we ever have, we come to that sweet place of rest. He's all we ever need. So our job is not to become some kind of a brotherhood or sisterhood of ridge sufficiency, it's to remind each other and point each other to the promises in Christ that we have that will never fail. The temptation, of course, is that we'll be a community of people that help one another. But instead of pointing them to Christ and reminding them that God will never leave you nor forsake you, we're tempted to take the credit for ourselves as a strong community. But you see how that undermines everything I've said to this point. God secures our victory in the strength of the united faith. So the most helpful thing that you can do when a brother or sister comes to you and their marriage is crumbling and they're on the brink of divorce, the most helpful thing that you can do is to not step in as the Messiah to fix the problem because you ain't going to be able to do it. You're broken too. But rather than that, it's to say, I don't have the answers for you, but Jesus does and here he is. Here is how he's revealed himself to us. And here's what he tells you to do. And here's how you live your life for him. And here's the grace and the mercy that he offers all who repent and believe. And, and here, let's walk together at, while we chase after Christ. Let's do it shoulder to shoulder. Man, I love the ministry that you all do with Target Dayton. Now, some of the churches that I've served have been in areas of the city where material poverty is crazy. Crazy just feels so overwhelming. You know what the temptation is? There's this Messiah complex temptation when you're ministering to the materially poor. Think, well, I can get you out of poverty. Guess what? You, you don't have enough money to do that. <laughs> you don't have enough stuff. You don't have enough material goods to pull somebody out of material poverty. What we are called to do as Christ's ambassadors is to demonstrate tangibly the love of Christ. And that's often done by hot meals and these other things. But as our brother said earlier, it's the gospel of Christ that saves. It's the good news of Jesus that is our end and our goal. And that's what you must hear today. If you are in a place of weariness, if you are in a place of vulnerability from the isolation where Satan has tried to pick you off and... Get involved in the lives and look around you right now. It could be the person in front of you, behind you, beside you. Somebody close to you needs to be reminded of the promises of God today. And it's not enough for you to say, well, I'm just going to go to church once a week and get reminded of the promises of God. Friends, we have a responsibility to be in each other's lives throughout the week, sharing life together in such a way that on Monday morning when we don't feel like being a faithful follower of Christ, there are people in your life who can remind you on Monday and remind you Tuesday evening and be there for you on Thursday to remind you that no weapon formed against you will prosper, to remind you that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, to remind you that though the clouds would obscure your view from the sun, the sun's still there and it's shining just as bright as it ever did even when you can't see it, and that one day when Jesus comes back and his glory is revealed and displayed in its fullness, we will fall at his feet and we will worship. We're not there yet. We're almost home. But in this journey, marred by attacks from the enemy, God has given us the gift of each other that we might persevere, that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, and that together we will persevere to the end. Together we will sing to the praise, of the mercy of his glorious grace. So some of you need to take this and be doers of the word by calling somebody. You might need to find somebody after church And say, how are you? How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I remind you of the promises of Christ? And there are some of you here this morning. And you've you've been isolated all your life. You've been weary. And you've been alone. Can I encourage you with this? There is a family called the Ridge. That you could be a part of. They're not perfect. They don't claim to be. But they would pledge to walk beside you. As you come to know and follow Jesus. And when you have those weary, tired moments, they'll be there for you to remind you that God's promises never fail. Did you know that today could be the first day that you turn away from your self-sufficiency, your isolation and weariness, your vulnerability, you could turn away from that to a safe community of people following Jesus. Today could be the day. It's on you. Respond to God. Pray to Him. Cry out to Him. I'm going to pray for us here in a moment. After our service ends, I'm going to be over in the connection corner. And I think one or two of our other elders here at the Ridge would be over there with me as well. And I'd love to talk to you more about what that looks like. I'd love to talk to you more and and even point you to Pastor Raleigh, who will be back. And he'll be able to help show you how the Ridge intentionally tries to build into the lives of one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being a loving loving Heavenly Father. A loving Heavenly Father who does not leave us alone. So when we feel alone, because we can't see, hear, or touch you, we pray that you would help us to look to your body that has been given to us to help us to do that, to bridge that gap. And while we walk by faith, not by sight, You've given us this incredible means of grace, and that is the body of Christ, so we could press into you, so that we could give and receive support, strengthen one another, and in that strength of our united faith, looking to you, you indeed secure our victory, and you bring us home. So until that day, help us to remain faithful together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at the Have a blessed day.